Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today, nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario, back after our little hiatus here in the fall. But we are back and coming in strong with some new episodes for you here in the month of November and kicking off with a great discussion about policing. Uh, in the 19th century out in the East Coast. A new book by Bob Gordon entitled The Bad Detective, The Incredible Cases of Nick Power. Uh, This is a really fascinating story that I wasn't familiar with before Bob and I uh, started to to talk and he sent me a copy of the book. So Nick Power was the detective for pretty much the Atlantic provinces in the late 19th century. He got his start in Halifax policing in 1864, became a detective in 1882, and he developed this reputation of being a very good detective. The press was very laudatory of him, particularly after a case where uh, some Fenians were arrested and Nick Power got credit for that, for the, the, the case, because... In part, it saved the life, allegedly, of the young prince who was on a ship. And Bob tells that story on the episode. So Nick Power, he is able to develop this reputation. He's able to develop a lot of authority, in large part because of his close relationship with the press. The issue with this is that Nick Power was not the most scrupulous of individuals. He frequently lied. He framed people. Uh, so the information that he was giving to the press wasn't really accurate, and yet it was printed a lot without comment. So it, it's this fascinating study into not only policing and the authority that goes into people who conduct these investigations, but also the relationship with the press and just generally the way in which the press could potentially be manipulated or manipulate its audience. Just a a very fascinating story. And and one of the things about Nick Power, too, is that those original pieces in the press in the late 19th century have been used over the last hundred years as sources by historians that have, have taken those reports and further propagated some of the claims that Nick Power made that uh, we know now that uh, likely were not true. So it's just an overall very fascinating tale. Bob has also written a book about life after COVID, which we'll talk about a little bit at the end of the show. Uh, so he has a, a wide range of experience as a writer, and it's evident in these two books. I very much enjoyed going through The Bad Detective and uh, look forward to looking through life after COVID. For as much as I enjoyed reading the book, also very much enjoyed the opportunity to talk with Bob. So let's get right into my conversation with Bob Gordon. All right. And Bob Gordon joins me now from Brantford, Ontario. Bob, how are you today? Wonderful. Thanks, Sean. I'm delighted to be here. I'm very excited that you are here after uh, a couple delays for us, uh, not quite getting the technology quite right on both of our ends, but it seems to be sorted out now, uh, and I'm very pleased to have you on the show to talk about The Bad Detective. Of course, as I said in the intro, this is based on the life of Nicholas Power, who was a detective based in Halifax at the late part of the 19th century. And Bob, before we get into some of the specifics of Nick's life, I'm curious, your background is a lot of of writing about military issues. Uh, You have really an extensive catalog to your name. 
So I'm just curious how you came across Nick Power and what drew you to him and, and what made you think that this could be a full-length monograph. Deborah Komar, an American forensic scientist, published a series of four books with Goose Lane in New Brunswick about what she cases she considered to be Canadian miscarriages of justice. And she wrote one about the case of Peter Wheeler, which uh, Nick investigated. And she felt so strongly about the case that the title of the book is The Lynching of Peter Wheeler. Wow. So that was my introduction to Nick. And I've been writing for about a decade historical pieces for Halifax Magazine. So having written a review, it struck me it would be a perfect topic for them, which it was. And that gave me the opportunity to investigate it a bit further. And it overwhelmed me, the absurdity in a real existential sense of his media image and his actual performance. They're just at opposite ends of the scale. Because, I mean, the title is obviously The Bad Detective, so it, it gives you a sense of your assessment of, of his career. So how did he become so well-known and so well-reputed in the early part of his career? Right? He, he becomes, he, he joins the force, uh, the police force, 1864. And by the 1880s, is the sense you get in the book is that he's really being well regarded the the press loves him they're talking about him as a super sleuth canada's version of sherlock holmes of sorts so how did he develop that type of reputation if his work was subpar he was promoted to detective in 1882 and in the following year Prince George, one of Queen Victoria's grandsons, was serving in the Royal Navy, and he came to Halifax as an initial stop on a tour of Canada, and returned to the ship in October 1883. And at the same time, Detective Power arrested two Irish Bostonians in the Parker House Hotel on Barrington Street and accused them of plotting to blow up the ship the prince was serving on, which coincidentally was HMS Canada. And the the press just exploded. There was... Um, really deep-seated hatred of Fenians in Canada at the time, which wasn't entirely misplaced because they invaded Canada five times in the wake of the Civil War. But essentially, Nick went to the press immediately with this tremendous story of dynamite and what was called a inflatable diving suit. He claimed that they had a rubber suit. They would inflate and then float across the harbor and attach a bomb to the Canada. 
So it literally made headlines worldwide. The interesting part of the story is that he completely framed them. They were two miners on their way to the uh, gold fields. And at the time, dynamite had just been invented, and there was literally no constraints on ownership of dynamite. He went to the hardware store and bought a stick of dynamite. In April, when they finally went to trial, they were only convicted of smuggling dynamite and having not paid the proper excise taxes. The idea of a plot had disappeared. The idea of an inflatable diving suit as a piece of evidence had disappeared. Mm -hmm. And they were sentenced to six months. So... There, there couldn't have been a plot. I mean, there was no conviction. By the time they went to trial, it had even disappeared from the charge sheet. Right. But the only note in the press of the actual trial and conviction was one inch in one Halifax newspaper. And what's striking is that became his foundation myth. He was the man who saved the prince. But the press at the time must have been aware of the outcome of the trial. And they proved unwilling to touch that story for whatever reasons. And he he was particularly adept at manipulating the newspapers and granting interviews at time of his choosing with his own agenda established. But it, it, it continues to mystify me that no one at the time called him on that story. Right. And, and it was repeated decade after decade until he died in 1936. And in fact, in 2010, one of the Halifax dailies had a Saturday feature on him that repeated the entire myth as gospel truth. So it, it does lead me a little to the question of the, you, you mentioned it's it's not quite known exactly why they did that. How much do you think the context of the time, the hatred, as you mentioned, of the Fenians plays into that, that, that the press was looking for something and he gave them what they wanted. And, and you, you talk about in the book about how he recognized the power of the press and he understood how he could manipulate the press. So if he recognized, hey, they're looking, they have this villain or this group of villains in the Fenians, I can capitalize on that. Do you think he was that calculated in this particular case where he recognized an opportunity and took advantage of it? Absolutely. Throughout his career, his image trumps any other priorities, whether it's truth, justice, accuracy, it can be even be demonstrated with a corollary. When he was first appointed chief on January 1st, 1906, he um, got, despite being chief and no longer detective, the attorney general dispatched him to Cape Breton Island to investigate a 
a murder of a couple and their two children with the house then burned down around them. And the coroner's inquest had re returned a null verdict. They, they requested his assistance. So a week after the crime, he shows up. And having done no investigative work, he announced to the press that there was no crime, that they hadn't been bludgeoned to death before the fire. They had died of smoke inhalation, and the battery to their heads wasn't caused by the axe that was found in the bedroom, but was a result of the burning house collapsing on them. So we shut down a, a case that was pretty obviously a murder. And the reason was he was in trouble in Halifax and he was in a rush to get back to Halifax to sort out his public image problems there. So even, I mean, he'd shut down an investigation if it fitted his purposes. So in that case, given how he could do that. He had the power to do that. What does it tell us about the oversight that existed at the time? Or I guess more, more honestly, the lack of oversight of, of him as a detective than him as the chief and really that somebody like him could have this rise. What does it tell us just in general, but the state of policing in Eastern Canada at the time? Having read the police committee minutes, I would estimate that 75 to 85 percent of the time in their meetings based on reading the minutes were spent disciplining police officers hmm. they were uh, they were a pretty gnarly crew right. frankly yeah and the biggest problem which was true of Halifax as a city in terms of issues was drunkenness and the police committee literally they'd spend hours on drunken police officers and the problem was the police committee would decide on a sanction but being a committee of city council as a whole they could then have their decisions overturned by the city council right and the stories are just remarkable like an officer, Inglis, I think it was nine or ten times he was drunk on duty before they finally fired him. So they, it wasn't a very well-paying profession, and it wasn't really well-respected. But Power looked the role. He was a big man. I, I guess 6'4", maybe, and 260. Right. Like he looked like a Victorian man's man, sort of that whole muscular Christianity thing. Yeah. So I think that helped. And I think his reputation, I mean, he was only a detective 14 months when he became the man who saved the prince. So I suspect that a lot of the politicians weren't interested in crossing them yeah yeah although that said in 1892 when the um, 
police force was reorganized. He was one of the two final candidates for uh, the chief's position. And basically, council united in an anything but power movement. And he was defeated by John O'Sullivan, who was the chief until Nick got the job 14 years later. So that that speaks to a little bit about how he eventually gets out of that position and, and potentially some of the misdeeds or, or at least the a, a lack of the praise that he had experienced earlier in his career. Because the book talks a lot about how power was framing innocent men where he was, you know, being openly or, or not open, maybe not openly, but being dishonest in his career and, and in his investigations. So did, was, did you get a sense of what his motivations were in doing these things in framing people and lying and, and what, what really motivated him throughout his career in doing these things that really went against what his entire job was supposed to be? Well, in a nutshell, ego. His image was his sole priority. In a certain sense, it maybe makes him quite a modern man. Yeah. That's also, I think, reflected in the fact that in the same way he chose Fenians, he chose people who were outsiders whether it was ethnically, linguistically, because of their social behavior. He liked preaching to the choir. Right. In the same way he looked like an upstanding, muscular gentleman, he tended to pick victims who were outsiders, and it, the public at large would be inclined to believe them as to be perpetrators. The coverage in, of the trial in Boston of Thomas Bram really highlighted that. Bram, who was ethnically indeterminate, was accused of this multiple murder of the captain, his wife, and the second mate. And the press in Boston, there happened to be a passenger on board on this trip who was a Boston Brahmin's son and a failed Harvard student. And he was described in the press as neat, alert, observant. They went through, he was wearing a tie and a collar. And then the next paragraph, they described, described Bram, the accused, and it's literally the other side of the coin. He's dirty, he's evasive, he doesn't have a collar. You know, similarly, Peter Wheeler, he lived in the community of Bear River for 12 years, but he was decidedly an outsider. And he boarded with um, a single woman with children. And there were rumors in the community about whether he was really a boarder or not. So again, he, he targeted somebody that popular opinion would find easy to convict. So in using the 
prejudices at the time within certain communities and taking advantage of that. What did he get out of it? You know, you talk about the ego of it and, and certainly being praised. There's, you know, there's a lot of that has been written about people becoming addicted to praise in a way, but for him, for uh, Nick power specifically is doing this and taking advantage of those societal prejudices is this really his way of frankly stepping on these men stepping on uh somebody like bram to move himself ahead not only in terms of the public adoration that he's receiving and, and the relationship with the press but potentially also financially like are there benefits in that regard as well the financial motivation question is really quite funny his retirement letter which he had published in both of the Halifax dailies as well as read into the record at council was he just laid on the Irish charm it was effusive to everybody and anybody and he went on about giving younger men a chance at promotion and yada yada but the funniest thing is the very first sentence he demanded the same superannuation as the previous chief. Problem being, the previous chief had served over 10 years and Nick had served 18 months. But the very first sentence is, I know you can pay me this much in retirement and I want it. And then he went on to be courteous to people. <laughs> so I think money was part of the motivation. I think the singularity that he was the only Halifax police officer to wear civvies. I mean, even the chief wore a uniform. And he actually had a, a quite a reasonable clothing allowance for the time. I mean, it was $40 a year when you could buy a suit for six or eight bucks. Right. And... Other than the chief, in 1905, he became the only other member of the force to have a phone installed in his own house. It's interesting because, I mean, money motivated him, but I, I, I really think it wasn't the primary motivation. I think it was one of the ways he kept score. But right. I, I, I think probably column inches meant more to them, him than dollar bills. And going back to the police committee meetings, he only appears twice, and neither time is it to do with drunkenness or misbehavior, actually. One, it, it, both occasions, his singularity as a detective was challenged and he fought back and the one is interesting because of course he's not actually on the police committee but the chief is and the chief had the committee pass a resolution that no police officers could engage in detection without the approval of the chief and power so somebody had been detecting, which Nick thought was stepping on his toes. Right. So he, in fact, appears in the 
police committee minutes, not as a, a malefactor, but in fact as an accuser. Sure. And the second instance, he'd been in Boston testifying at a court case, and he was challenged over his expenses. And the one was paying $4 a night for a hotel room. I don't know if that was exorbitant at the time or not. But the other one was he'd paid out, I believe it was $25 to informants. And he refused to name them to the police committee. He said the way he did his detection was the way he did it, and he wasn't going to name them, and that was that. And he was actually suspended for a few weeks and held a in-camera session with the committee chairman during which he apparently explained who he'd paid the money to. And the chairman went back to the committee and said, issue's dead, it's been explained to me. Hmm. So he seems to have taken a lot of pride in his role. And as I said, I think the money was just the way he kept score. But I right. think it was really about maintaining this well, superhuman reputation. Yeah, and as you say in the book, it that reputation lasted for a long time, and and people continue to write about the way in which Nick Power did his job, and, and generally the historiography, the historiography has been in, in somewhat glowing terms. So why do you think that is? Why do you think nobody has really looked into Nick Power, given he was so powerful at the time, he was a very influential, you, you mentioned the number of cases that he worked on, the famous cases he worked on, in particular the Fenians. Why do you think he hasn't really been investigated with a lot of skepticism, and I mean that in the best possible way, the saying skepticism, uh, really, until you de delve into this in, in the way you did, what what makes us as historians take the literature from the 19th century, all the stuff that was out in the press about him? Why why are we taking that, or why have so many people historically taken that at face value and not really tried to delve deeper into his career? Well, in terms of the piece in 2010. That I find explicable. I mean, somebody had, a write, had to write a feature. They went to the archive and churned it out. So, you know, I can understand that error. But why he wasn't challenged at the time, the only explanation that I can come up with, and I really don't think it's adequate, is the nature of journalism at the time. I mean, this was the era of yellow journalism, you know, where Hearst sent Remington to Cuba. And what's the famous quote? Uh, you know, stay, you provide the pictures, I'll provide the war. Right, yeah. <laughs> that was coupled, that kind of irresponsible journalism was, you know, coupled with these circulation wars and the whole Victorian fascination with death, Nick just fell into the role. In doing that, in sort of 
falling into it and, and becoming so important, so, so powerful in that regard, does it tell us something more about the way in which power manifests itself and the way in which powerful individuals come to power and the way in which they can maintain their position, maintain their hold on communities, despite potentially not being the most scrupulous of individuals? Is there a larger message or a larger lesson that we can take out of the career and the story of Nick Power? Yeah, and what I would suggest the most important lesson is to be very careful about the media. Yeah. Without the phenomenal increase in newspaper re readership that accompanied power, I don't think a phenomenon like him could have arisen before then. What keeps coming back to me is just the, the willingness of the media to trade speed over accuracy. You know, this perpetual search for a scoop, they were quite willing to leap on rumor and turn them into block letter headlines. You know, and they, they, they were willing to swallow uncritically what Nick told them. And it's interesting, too, to think of it in contemporary terms, uh, the, the discussions around media and, and accuracy, impartiality, all these questions that exist today. But you could also make an argument, certainly in the cases that, that you're talking about in the book, that there's more transparency right now within the media that at the very least, when we're talking about people who are more on the opinionist side of the media, we at least know where they stand, where they're coming from. And there are more, more points of access to understand how they're getting their information. Whereas, yeah, in the 19th century, that era of I'm the journalist, I'm writing this, take it as fact, it, for, for all the problems that there are now, there seems to me to be a just more ways in which the public who is consuming this has an opportunity to question it and to investigate themselves the motivation of the journalist who is producing the material. Yeah, we have a greater diversity of sources today. Yeah. There was no radio, no, there was nothing but the newspaper. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. With the wider diversity of views in the media, theoretically, one should be able to make a better decision by, you know, evaluating diverse viewpoints. But I think the flip side to that is with the proliferation of media, there's been this huge proliferation of disinformation. I think it's a broader media spectrum, but I think it includes an awful lot of baloney. Right. But it, it does lead to an interesting question because because you raised that uh, the just blatant disinformation that we see today, the things that is, is things that are demonstrably not true that people put out there. But how do you compare that to some of what Power was doing in his influencing of the media? Like, how, how do we distinguish necessarily between disinformation today and what Power was doing with his uh, connections and the way he was so greatly influencing the material that came out about him and his cases. What Power realized was the media was far more immediate than the 
justice system. Right. I mean, the Peter Wheeler, Amy Kempton case occurred in February, and he wasn't, he was jailed right away, but he wasn't actually formally charged until June, and he was sentenced in August and killed in September. So it was basically nine months, eight months. But the headlines appeared the day of. Right. So by the time it got to the trial, I mean, they, they actually moved the trial from, I think, Digby to Kentville in an effort to get an unbiased jury. But, I mean, it had been headlines in every paper in Canada for eight months. Right. So I'm not sure a move from Digby to Kentville really got any clearer, cleaner a jury. Right. But for all intents and purposes, Peter Wheeler was convicted days after the crime. In fact, the coroner that ran his inquest was a young doctor, and he uh, it was his first coroner's inquest in his life. And a coroner's inquest determines cause of death. That's it. So if, whether a person is stabbed or fell through a glass plate window and cut their throat, that's what they'll answer. But they have nothing to do with pointing out an accused. And power and the Crown Attorney had put so much pressure on this coroner that when he came back at the end of the inquest with the verdict, he said that she died from having her throat cut, not uh, blows to the head. Right. And then added the last sentence that, and we believe Peter Wheeler did it. It was completely out of his wheelhouse to point out an accused. And so, of course, it was headlines in the papers two days after the murder. Coroner determines Peter Wheeler murderer. Right. So by the time he got to a trial in August, I mean, the, the news was out. You know, the, the narrative of, it, of events had been established by power months before the courtroom tried to determine what had happened. You know, in that case, I mean, it, it's as egregious as the Saving the Prince story because the, the, the physician who performed the autopsy determined that the death had occurred between 2 and 4 a.m. And Powers' timeline to convict Peter Wheeler required the murder to have occurred at 5 o'clock the previous afternoon. And the coroner just overruled the uh, doctor who performed the autopsy and announced that the murder had occurred sometime between five in the afternoon and five in the morning. So, you know, Peter really, there was no way he was going to get a fair trial. What what lessons do you think that could tell us about how we maybe consume press, consume the media in 2021, but also maybe the way in which we think about policing and investigations and, and those who have that authority, you know, are there lessons that we can draw from Nick Power, his career, and use them to shape the way we are influenced or inform the way that we think and approach these issues 
in 2021? Well, suffice to say that ethnicity and policing remains an issue in Halifax. And I think the myth around the man who saved the prince maybe offers some precautionary notes regarding the war on terror. The media is not beyond demonizing subjects, I don't think, to increase sales. I mean, you know, just you can see it in extremists with Fox and Newsmax. There's someone like Tucker Carlson. I mean, I, I can't believe Tucker Carlson believes the things he says, you know, but it seems to have cinched him a huge viewership. And I don't... I mean, to return to the question of power's motivations, the question that's curious for me is whether or not he believed what he was putting out there. That's a good question. You know, that raises some really profound moral and ethical issues. You know, and I wonder if maybe at the beginning of his career he didn't believe it, but he came to believe his own press. I don't think he would be the first individual that that's happened to. No, definitely not. And uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting to think about and to look back. And, and obviously we don't know exactly what those motivations were, but it is interesting to look at them. And, and another area, of course, where understanding the connection between the press and, and those who are in positions of authority and just generally being informed in your consumption of the press does relate to the pandemic that we've all been living through for the past almost two years. And Bob, you have a book about the pandemic as well called Life After COVID-19, Lessons from Past Pandemics. And I know the the point of today was to talk about Nick Power, but I'm curious if you could just give us a bit of a rundown behind that book and what your experience is, because you you have this, this background in writing about infectious diseases and maybe just give us a sense of, of where you think we're going with the pandemic and, and what people can expect moving forward and, and how looking at these past examples can help us as we start to hopefully come out of all of the restrictions and get back to some semblance of normalcy. I look at six past pandemics, starting inevitably with the Black Death, up to the influenza pandemic of 1919 and look particularly at their sequelae and then use that as a springboard to look at our future. And I'm delighted, absolutely delighted to say I made one significant fundamental error. I predicted there would not be a vaccine until at least 2022. Right. And I'm delighted that I was mistaken. The two most significant changes we're going to see actually relate to communication technology. I think the one is that healthcare model is going to move to electronically mediated whether it's just a telephone, whether it's a conversation like we're having now, whether it's on Zoom, there's just, there's, I realize there's 
there's billing issues and bureaucratic issues to be sorted out in Ontario. But it, it's infinitely safer for the patient to not have to sit in a waiting room with other ill people. And it, it, with doctors, the way the healthcare system's overloaded and waits in waiting rooms, it's just incredibly convenient. So I think there's going to be huge changes towards remote health care. And the second thing, and this happened after the influenza pandemic, the issues about ventilation are going to come to the fore, like interior ventilation in condos and tiered living. I think there's going to be some major changes there. What happened after the influenza pandemic actually was uh, people moved away from cast iron forced air furnaces and uh, water heating radiators became incredibly popular. And the third thing is, I don't have any idea how the hospitality industries are ever going to recover. We're going to see a major change in everything from professional sports and entertainment to restaurants and hotels. For sure. It's going to be major changes. And you're right that we looking back at those earlier pandemics, those examples can can provide a bit of a guidebook for us. So uh, again, that book is called Life After COVID Lessons from Past Pandemics. And it is available now. And the book, of course, we've been talking about for most of this uh, podcast, The Bad Detective, The Incredible Cases of Nick Auer, which was released earlier this fall. So, Bob, if people want to find the book or maybe get some more information about you and all of your writing, uh, where can they find it? And uh, where would you point them to uh, to check out the book? Well, I always say at your best local independent bookstore. The monsters in the marketplace all carry it as well, but independent bookstores are incredibly important. And online, there's 10 Baker Street. For years, it was a fixture in Toronto, and they've gone just electronic. So certainly would encourage everybody to check it out again. The Bad Detective, The Incredible Cases of Nick Power by Bob Gordon. Bob, I really appreciate you taking the time to join me today and overcoming the uh, the struggles we had even while we were recording uh, to, uh, to talk about it. R- really enjoyed it, and congratulations again on the book. Oh, my pleasure, Sean, and thanks for the invite. So there you have it. My discussion with Bob Gordon again. The book is The Bad Detective, The Incredible Cases of Nick Power, and if you are interested, you can also check out Life After COVID-19 Lessons from Past Pandemics. So again, I thank Bob for his time in, in arranging a copy of the book for me. And as I said off the top, I liked reading it. And I think uh, if you read it, you'll enjoy it as well. A lot of layers to this story. So certainly would encourage you to check out The Bad Detective if you are interested. So that will do it for this week. Thank you, everybody, so much for listening and for your patience with us as we had our hiatus there. Look forward to bringing new episodes through the end of the year. And I think we're off to a good start here with Bob. So uh, do subscribe to the feed so you don't miss anything if you have not subscribed yet. Do all the likes, the ratings, comments, all that good stuff helps other people find the show, helps to keep us growing here on the History Slam. 
Of course, if you want to hear something specific on the show, feel free to reach out HistorySlam at gmail.com or you can find me on Twitter at the Sean Graham. And of course, do head on over to ActiveHistory.ca. Some great stuff over there, including Methodologies in COVID, uh, a, a series that I very much enjoyed going through, just seeing all the struggles that people are experiencing in just conducting historical research over the past 18 months. So some wonderful insights there along with everything else that's over on the site so as always do check out activehistory.ca so that's it for this episode again thank you for listening we'll be back with you again soon but until then if you're out and you see enrico palazzo please say hi for me Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.